Uh, it is this coming Friday. I know, listen, I know it's a lot of people's birthday this week, but I'm on the stage, so it's my birthday this week. This Friday, I turn 38 years old, I think. I forget. After I cross like 31 or 2 or 3, I've kind of lost the numbers, but my wife tells me it's 38. I know that because she turns 40 this year, but I'm not supposed to say that, so I'm not going to say that. So for, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I won't, I won't say that. Um, uh, anyway, um, 38 for me, so that's fine. I still have two years. Um, it is it is a tradition of mine, whenever I'm able to do so, to make the sermon that I preach on my birthday week um, a little bit, um, I don't want to say autobiographical, because then you're going to think it's about me, and it's not about me. We're going to be in the Bible, but it's, a, it's the kind of sermon where I know what it is. Do you know, um, if you've been on our Sunday nights um, that we've had this, this past summer, and we did it in the past too, we would have a guest speaker come in, we have the round table, we're finishing that series up tonight with Jonathan House from Liberty. And at the end of the questions for whatever the topic is, we always have some bonus questions. And one of the questions that we always ask the preacher is, uh, if this coming Sunday was your last Sunday, what would be the sermon that you'd preach? What's, what's your final sermon going to look like if you knew you would have a final sermon, and not just preaching every week and then suddenly you just drop dead and so you don't get to have kind of a thematic last sermon. If you could plan that sort of thing, what would be your very last sermon? And so I have always tried on my birthday week to make that sermon what could be my last sermon. So I don't know, and that's one of the points of the sermon, I don't know if I'm going to live or die past today. None of us do. But let's just say that this is it for me, that this is the last sermon I'll ever preach. I want that sermon every year toward the end of August, to be a, a sermon that is fittingly my final sermon. So that's what you're going to get uh, today. You're going to get my last sermon. Now, I'll, hopefully, Lord willing, I'll preach to you in a couple weeks, but you're going to get today my last sermon. And what are we going to talk about? What should we talk about? I have a subject matter that's on my mind. It's been on my mind all year long, going back to late last year when we were planning out our sermons for the year. We knew our theme would be wonderful words of life. We knew that we would open the songbook and we would come up with sermons from the songs. We would let the melodies and the harmonies and the poetry of those hymns direct our Bible study in the worship time. There is a song that I have been singing or that I have heard sung for as long as I can remember. I mean, going back to a child sitting in my mother's lap at the Hattieville Missionary Baptist Church, I have heard this song sung. And I have always loved this song, even before I ever knew it was Scripture. I think maybe as you get older, implicitly and kind of um, instinctually, you, you realize something is about the way the words are arranged. It's not quite Scripture. Oh, I mean, it is Scripture. It's not quite just a song someone made up, that the words are quotations of text from the Bible. Because just the arrangement of the words, it has a very King James sort of flow to it. But I love this song, and I wanted to preach it, and I know I wanted to preach it on my birthday week. So if this is the last sermon I ever preach, I think it's a very appropriate one. The title of which is, I Know Whom I Have Believed. See, I am about to turn 38 years old. I have lived almost 38 years in this world. I don't know, but let's say, Lord willing, I've got another 38 in me before I'm done. If so, I'm halfway. I can't help but think, especially everyone does this as you get older and your birthdays mean less about presents and cake and things. They mean more about your life and reminiscing and reflecting and preparing for the future and reflecting on the past. When, when your birthday gets to that point in your life, you will not be able to help but start to contextualize your life in that way. And as a Christian, as a preacher, as a, as a lover of the Word of God and as a student of the Bible, I can't help but kind of do that uh, in that way. 
So I'm thinking about it from those terms. There's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things I have learned over the many years that I've been alive. And there's many things that I still, after 38 years, do not know. And I don't know if I'll ever know the answers to those questions until the end comes and all will be revealed. But I know enough to get by. I have lived 38 years knowing just enough to be okay. And I have finally reached the point, I hope, where that's okay. Where I'm okay with saying, if I never know the answer to this, or if I never understand why that, I'm okay. Because I at least know that I know this. Now what is that that I know? I know whom I have believed. Now there's some things I don't know. And that's what I want to start with in the sermon. There's some things I don't know why. There's some things I don't know how. There's some things I don't know to what extent. And there's some things I don't know when. So let's talk about some of those things, because I know there's some things that you share with me. And then at the end, we're going to come together and understand what we do know. I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me, he has made known. Titus 2.11, here's what I do know though. I do know that God's wondrous grace has been made known. But I can't wrap my mind around how God could look at the state of the world and I'm not thinking about you, I'm thinking just about me. How God could look down at the state of the world from his future eye, way back when, and see me in all of my imperfections and all of my flaws and all of my mistakes and look right at me and say, I want to save that person. See my sins, see all my mistakes and say, I want to make my wondrous grace known to that person. I don't know why. And I guess it should be a what. I don't know what he sees in me. Because I see myself in the mirror, and I don't just mean my reflection. That's beautiful. I mean spiritually. I mean when I look in the, the, the perfect mirror of the Word of God, and I see reflect back not what I am, but what I need to be, what I'm supposed to be, what I continually fail to be, that mirror that shows that special kind of divine mirror that doesn't show me who I am, but who I'm supposed to be. And I look and I see how little self-worth, how little I am really worth, I should say, to my Father in heaven. So I don't know why he looked at me, and you can say this of yourself, hopefully, and said, I want to save that person. But I do know that the grace of God has appeared unto all men, and it teaches us that if we follow this book and we deny ungodliness and worldly lust, then we can live soberly and righteously in this present world. I don't know why I deserve to do that, but I, I know that I can do that. I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known. Nor do I know why Christ has redeemed me for his own. I know that I am redeemed. Titus 2, if you're still in Titus 2, verse 11 through 14, just the completion of the text. It ends with Paul saying, Jesus Christ who has bought us, the King James says, redeemed us. But the idea is to purchase for his possession. He has redeemed us from all iniquity. And purified us unto himself, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He has taken that person that he looked way a long time ago and said, he's sinful, he's disgusting, he's disrespectful, he, is, he doesn't listen, he doesn't take instruction well, he doesn't play well with others, he doesn't do what I say, but I'm going to work to the point of my son's death to save that person. Because I want that person, me, I want him, he says of me, to be different, to be peculiar. 
In what way? That I'm going to be zealous of good works. Because at the time he looked at me before the cross, he saw how zealous I was for bad works. He saw how much I worked hard to do evil. And he says, if I could just channel that positively. I wonder if Paul writing this was not thinking of himself. Like I'm thinking of myself, and maybe you're thinking of yourself. The actual author of this, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew just how zealous of evil works he was once upon a time. How passionately he hunted down God's people. And yet Jesus saw in him the potential of Paul. And he says, if I could just channel that negativity, if I could just channel that hatred, if I could just steer that ship the other way, think of all the good he could do. I don't know why he was willing to do that and not just destroy him or destroy me, but I know that he did. I don't know why Christ redeemed me for his own, but I know he did redeem me. But that's not how the, the, the song goes, did it? We cut out some words, didn't we? I don't know why unworthy, that's me, not Christ. I don't know why unworthy me was redeemed by Christ, but I know I am unworthy. Open your Bibles for this one. Look at Ephesians 2. I know you know the text. It's one of those texts that we've, we've heard, we've read, and we've studied many times. But every now and then it's important just to see it with your eyes and not just up here. So look at Ephesians 2, 5 through 9. Don't read any other verse than what I'm telling you. Don't cheat. Ephesians 2, just 5 through 9. As we consider how unworthy we are. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our sins, has he quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. And then a little parenthetical, by grace are you saved. And he has raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And to reiterate that point, he says, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody gets to climb the mountain, plant the flag, and say, now you owe me one. I've done it. I've pulled it off. I did the thing. So now you have to give me that. Nobody has to put God, nobody gets to put God in their debt where he owes us salvation, where he has to pay us back. No, we're paying him back, but it's a debt that we cannot ever fully pay back. We'll just keep trying until we die, paying him back for what he did for us because we were unworthy. It is by unmerited favor, it is by grace we have been saved through our faith in him who saved us, not of anything we accomplished, but of all that he accomplished. I don't know why unworthy me gets to be redeemed. Except I know some things. I know the motivator of it. Look at Ephesians 2. You're in verse 5 through 9. Just go back one verse. Look at Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is replete, whose treasures are overflowing, God who is rich, in mercy for his great love wherewith he's loved us. I love the way that's phrased. Because it's Paul saying, God has this storehouse of love, but he doesn't keep it to himself. It's a love wherewith he loves us. In other words, God, this might actually answer the, the question of the song, I know not why. Because it tells us he loves us, but we're actually, what we're saying is, I don't know why I'm loved. I don't know how I get to be loved. But Paul's giving you the hint here. God has all this love, and he just thinks to himself, I can't just keep this to myself. I must make people to, to love people and to beckon them to love me back. But I will love them even if they don't love me back. And I will give them from the storehouse of my love, from the treasury of my love, because I am rich in it. And I just want to share it abundantly. No wonder the word commonly used for love is agape, which is also translated as charity. I've got all this, and I can't take it with me. 
when I die. So I'm just going to give it away. I'm going to share. Not share because that implies giving back. I'm just going to hand off, hand out, give away. God has all this love and he thinks it could just stay up here forever or I could just give it away. So I guess I do know why. Because he doesn't want to keep it to himself. He wants to love. And he is rich in it, love. And so he gives it. But still, when I think about myself and my own self-worth, I can't help but wonder, why? Why me? So I don't know why. But I do know that I'm loved. And I do know that I am redeemed. Here's another one. I know not how. Not just the understanding of the question, but I don't also understand the mechanics of an operation. I don't know how this saving faith he did in me, to me in part. In other words, I don't understand necessarily all the ways that the, the, the power of the Bible operates on the heart of a person. How a person can read a single text, shrug their shoulders, and walk away from it. And another person can read the same text and be compelled to repent of sins they've been committing for 50 or 60 years. I don't understand how that works, but I know that it works. I know the persistence of the Bible has proven itself over and over and over in time. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing the word of God. But that's just an axiom. That's just a fact that Paul understands and he's sharing with you. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, but I don't know how by hearing the word of God, faith happens. I don't know the mechanics of it, but I know that it happens. And along the same line, by believing in his word, peace comes in my heart, but I don't know how that happens. I don't understand how, but I just I see the evidence of it. I have witnessed people go through the turmoil of anxiety where your mind becomes your own enemy, where your own thoughts become your, 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 your antagonist, where it's not some physical thing out there that you can fight off, where it's not some entity separate from you that you can run away from or that you can hide from or that you can destroy out of your presence, but it's within yourself and you can't get rid of your own mind and you can't run away from your own thoughts. And when they turn against you, how crippling that can be. But I have witnessed people find moments where they have enough clarity to have the peace which passes understanding. And little moments of reprieve when that medical condition is, is lax and they can remind themselves, enough critical moments in their life, remind themselves, I have Christ, I have God, I have loved ones around me, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be hard perhaps even as early as tomorrow or as early as five minutes from now, but it's going to be okay. The word accomplishes that peace. Other things do too as well. Prayer can accomplish that peace. Christian fellowship can accomplish that. But the, the, this, the, the wellspring of the word of God, to be able to draw and tap that well whenever you need, draw from that well whenever you need, cannot be overstated. Psalm 119, 165. Listen to what the psalmist says. Obviously, as you know, every single verse in Psalm 119 is an ode to the word of God. But 165, 65 too also is very good. But Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace do I have through them which love your law. Do have they through them which love your law, and nothing shall offend them. It doesn't mean problems won't come. It means the one who follows your law will follow a pathway that will lead and will never let them stumble. If you follow the law, you'll never stumble from following the law. The, the, the word, the word of God will never lead you astray. Your mind can deceive you. Your mind can lead you astray. The devil can deceive you and lead you astray. And the devil's workers in this world can do so as well. And this environment of sin can lead you astray. But if you're following the word of God, you don't always follow the word of God. But when you're following the word of God, it will never lead you astray. 
If you love this book and you follow this book, peace follows. I don't know how that happens. I just know that it happens. But I couldn't tell you the mechanics of it. I couldn't tell you the process of it. Just along the same lines. In the song, it's another how, but it's used in the sense of to what extent. I don't know to what extent or how the Spirit moves, convincing, literally convicting men of sin. But I know that He does. I've seen the evidence of it here. I've seen the evidence of it in, in, in my life, in, in the world today, in the present age. I've seen the evidence of it. We were in Titus a minute ago. Go back to Titus 1, verse 9. And listen to what uh, the, the um, uh, Apostle Paul says. This is in the context of talking about elders, but it's applicable to anyone who's in a position of authority, and anyone who stands to teach this word is, puts himself in a position of authority. So listen to Titus 1, verse 9. If I can get there today. Second Timothy, Titus, 1, 9. Holding fast, speaking of elders, but applicable. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, lift up, encourage, and convict. The King James says convince, but it's not like to win an argument convince. It is convict. It is to prick the heart. It is to stir within someone's guilty conscience a desire to make things right, to convict the gainsayer. As I say, you have all kinds of Bible examples of this happening. Acts chapter 2, for example. But you can also witness this happen in this present day. We just lost, uh, my wife and I, Lauren and I, uh, we have a very good friend from Memphis. Uh, her name was Becky Sowell. She just passed away. She was, she was as, the moment she passed away, she was a very old lady, but she had lived a very long, faithful, rock-solid, faithful life to the Lord for many years, decades, I think it was. Her husband, Marv, was not a Christian. Uh, Cecil, sorry, you don't know, Marv's her son. You wouldn't know anyway, Cecil is his name. Not a Christian. And I don't just mean show up, was kind, I mean wouldn't even darken the door. And every single Lord's Day, Becky Sal did not miss a worship service at the Forest Hill Church of Christ. She would get up early in the morning on Sunday, she would make her dress, or get her dress, get herself dressed, she would make her breakfast, she would be prepared to go, and then before she would leave, she would lay out uh, Cecil's clothes on the bed, as he was still laying in the bed. And she would lay them out in the off chance he wanted to go to church with her. And every Sunday, he would just lay in the bed. And every Sunday, she would come home, and she would tell them what they talked about in church, and they would study the Bible together. She would just speak to him the Bible. And then every Sunday morning, she'd lay out his clothes again and go through the whole song and dance all over again. And every single Sunday, she'd lay out his clothes, and he'd stay in the bed. She'd come home, and she'd tell him what they talked about. And every single Sunday, she'd lay out his clothes, and every single Sunday, he would say no. For years and years and years, this woman never quit putting out her husband's suit. And then one Sunday... He put it on. Shortly thereafter, baptized into Jesus Christ, faithful till death. I have seen, I have borne witness to the power of the Word of God pricking a heart that you think is impenetrable. I don't know how it works. I don't know to what extent where the Spirit, how the Spirit operates and how much is human motivation and how much is God's own convicting of a heart. I don't know I know that through the Word of God, it is revealed who Jesus is, and that story of Jesus can resonate if you want it to, but I couldn't tell you how. I couldn't give you the extent. I couldn't give you the mechanics of how God convicts people of their sin, but I know that He does by revealing Jesus through the Word, and in so revealing, creating faith in the one who hears that story. John chapter 20, Thomas finally showed up, and this time, Thomas saw the Lord. 
And Thomas, who we wrongly call Doubting Thomas, Thomas did not do what the other apostles did the first time. They saw the Lord and Thomas wasn't there. You remember what happened the first time Jesus appeared after the resurrection? He appears in front of them and they don't believe he's really there. They doubted he was really there. No one calls him Doubting Peter, James, Andrew, John. But they doubted he was there. So they made him eat food in front of them and they watched to see if he would disappear out of his body like the ghost of Jacob Marley or something. But he, he didn't do it. He was the flesh and blood. So that's when they believed he was really resurrected. Thomas wasn't there for that. But he heard about it, and he said, well, I want to see what you saw. I want to see him eat some food and stuff. And then when Thomas saw Jesus in the flesh, he didn't say, here's a cracker. He didn't doubt. He didn't question. He scrutinized. He drops to his knees, which they didn't do, and he says, my Lord and my God. That's not a doubter. That's a confessor. And here is where John interjects a little bit of commentary. And he says, many more signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John. But these things are written so that you might believe on the name of the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in that name. I don't know how all that works. I don't know how the spiritual being can pierce through my non-physical conscience. My conscience is not in me, where you can cut it out, and you can see, here's my conscience. I can hold it up to scrutinize and examine. It's an ethereal thing. So I don't know how the Spirit works through that, but I know by reading this book and by seeing those signs, I wasn't there, neither was Thomas. But then Thomas saw, I haven't seen, but I will see eventually. And in the meantime, I will believe. I will believe in the one they call Jesus. I will believe he stormed Galilee. I will believe that he walked on the water. I will believe that he raised dead Lazarus. I will believe that he's coming for me. I will believe those things because this book tells me those things. And these people believe these things and they saw it. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know to what extent. And I don't know when. This is the one you think about on your birthday time. How long am I going to last in this world? Because I'm already fat and bald and my back hurts, and parts of me that I didn't know I had suddenly are hurting now, and that's how I know I have them, and I'm just aching all over, and mornings are now a thing that hurts me, and it used to be an exciting time, I would get, get up happy, and now I get up grumbling, and I make groans every time I sit down now. I don't know when that started, but every time I sit, I make this sound, ugh. Anyone else do that? I don't know what that is. It's like my knees just make me say, ugh, when I, or when I get up again, and your song is always making us hop up and down. I'm always grunting all the time. That's age. I don't know how long I've got left. I don't know when this will all end. And to get bigger picture, I don't know when my Lord may come. He may come at night. He may come at noonday. Fair. Matthew 24, 36 through 39, Jesus says, Nobody knows except the Father in heaven. It will be like in the days of Noah. As all the people were just living their lives. They were old. They were young. They were happy. They were sad. They were angry. They were, they were making merry. They were marrying. They were giving in marriage. They were doing all kinds of evil things. They were just all living their lives thinking as though everything would never change. And then suddenly everything changed. And a man named Noah started shouting at them to repent and turn back to the creator of Adam. And none of them listened because they thought that's old news, that's old hat. We can do something else. We can have our own way, do our own thing, live our own lives. And no one listened to Noah. And then he got in the boat and the door was shut. And the rain started falling and the water started rising. And by then it was too late. If they had been told, 6.13 tomorrow, it'll be too late. 6.12, somebody might have repented and then got in the boat insincerely. Someone might have insincerely thought, well, we'll see. You know, I'm not going to take a chance. But they heard a message of it'll happen when it happens, and you have to make a heartfelt decision to repent. That means i gotta live, I got to live this faithful life. i got to live without any kind of uh, you know, giving in to temptation, 
when I mess up, repent, all the things you understand. But i got to live that kind of a life and not have any sinful fun on the off chance that Jesus might come back in my life. If you just told me he'll come back like the day after I die when I'm at 97 years old, then I'll, I'll just have fun until I'm 96 and a half, and then I can repent. That's not how it works. You may not be 97 when he comes back. You may be 7. You may be 17. You may be 71. You don't know. I'm turning 38 on Friday. I don't know. I may not make it to 38. The Lord may come back tomorrow. I may die tonight. In fact, that's the next line of the song. I don't know if I'll walk the veil with him. The veil is a word for valley. I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I may not come out on the other side. I may not, I may not live to see the Lord descend with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Or... I may, and I'll see the Lord descend, and I'll watch my loved ones who I buried six feet in the ground rise up, and together us meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Why do they get to rise first? Because they're six feet lower than I am. They've got to catch up to me. So they're going to rise first, and then together we're going to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know if I'll ever see that from this vantage point. I may see it from this vantage point. I don't know. You don't know either. The impetus on you, therefore, is to be faithful. Is not to do what the people of Noah's day did and disregard. If I don't know when it's going to happen, I'm just going to have fun until it happens. And you will until it happens. Instead, be faithful unto death whenever that may come. There's a lot of things I don't know. So go to our text now. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what I do know as we close. I do know whom I have believed, Paul says. Or as the song goes, I know whom I have believed. I have faith in the man of God, whom I have believed. See, that's a person who's writing, looking back on years of faith already in Christ. He's not saying, I know I will believe in Jesus. We sang that song too. I love that song. I, I do believe and I will believe no matter the cost. But this is Paul looking backward. This is Paul reflecting. I know whom I have thus far believed, and I'm going to keep on believing as implied. But his words are, I've been believing him already. He's never steered me wrong so far. I have believed him. I will continue believing him. I have faith in the man of God. And I am persuaded, he says. I have faith in the word of God. I have faith in that which tells me when I'm not doing right. And I have faith which tells me how to do right. I have faith which tells me what right looks like. And it will persuade me out of my evil. It will persuade me out of my mistakes. I have faith in the word of God. It persuades me, what? That he is able. I have faith in the power of God. I have faith that God can do what he needs to do to get me through. Because the context of this text is, I suffer many things. I have many kind of hardships within and without. Am I going to give up? Am I going to quit? Am I going to throw up my hands and go to an easier life in this world? No, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to get me through. I have faith in the power of God. Able to what? To keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I have faith in the judgment of God. We talked in class a little bit about mercy this morning. Mercy being, I could destroy you right now, but I'm going to wait and give you space to repent. I'm going to give you a chance to do right. I'm going to give you a second chance. That's what God did through Jonah to Nineveh. That's what God did to Jonah to Jonah. I'm going to give you a second chance to repent and do right. That's what mercy looks like. 
I don't know when judgment may come, but I know it hasn't come yet, so I'm living in the second chance. I'm living in the opportunity to get right. There is a day coming, and I have faith that it's coming. And it motivates me to be faithful. Let's take that text, which is so King Jamesy in the way we sing it. Let's just rearrange it to make it a little more modern English. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able against that day to keep that which I have committed unto him. What have I committed to him? The word refers to, in fact, in the Greek, you can look it up, it refers to putting something in a, security, in a secure place, like a vault or a safe or in a bank with your money. I have committed something to him. I have given him something for safekeeping. I've given him my life. He's my shepherd. I'm his sheep. I've given him my soul. He's my creator. I'm his made one. I've given him my emotions. I've poured out my heart to him more in ways in which I have not done to any other person. I've given him my children while I've tried to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I've given him my marriage to be honorable before him as I should be. I've given him my everything, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've given him those things on the confidence and the faith that his hollowed hand is secure, that he will not let a single thing that I've given him slip. Now, some of those things have free will to walk away, but I, including myself, but I've given me to him. And if I don't walk away, that hand stays closed and the devil cannot pry open those fingers. I have faith in the security of God that no matter what happens, he will take care of me. No matter how stupid I become, if I go back into that hand, safe I will be once more. I know whom I have believed. There's a lot of things I don't know. I know I can sometimes talk like a know-it-all, and I, I repent of that. I don't mean to sound like a know-it-all. There's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things that I ought to know that I don't know. There's a lot of things that none of us can know. But I know this. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep all that I've committed to him, and he will keep them in his possession until time is no more. Now what about you? Are you a faithful child of God? Do you know him? Do you still know him? Have you committed yourself to him for safekeeping? If not, repent and come back to him. Be restored. Are you a Christian? If you are not, you are on a path that will lead to your eternal damnation. Repent and be baptized. Wash your sins away in his blood. And then just be faithful. Know whom you believe. And trust that he will keep you until that day. If we can have, help you this morning in any way, let us know how right now as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash matthew-martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's you know it's not easy. But if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, Anchor A N C H O R dot F M slash Matthew M A T T H E W dash Martin four one four, and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.